Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Welcome to you. Wherever you are listening, around Australia, around the world, thank you for giving episode 168 of the Howie Games Part A some of your time. It features 800-metre gun, Peter Boll. Boll's there for the moment. 12 coming at him. Peter Boll, 1968, the last time we've had a finalist of the 800. Hang on, Peter, he's going to. He's into the final. Pete came in to record this episode at the fancy schmancy new Listener HQ studios in South Melbourne. I met him downstairs. We were walking to the lift and two blokes came up. Peter Bowl, you're a legend. Can't believe you're here. Love your work. You're a star. You're the man. Can we get a selfie? Pete was laughing along, said, of course you can get a photo. But these two chaps, they were right. Peter Bowl is a legend and he's slighter than you think. There's nothing to him. He's built like a whippet, more speed than power. And when he walks... It's quite strange. When he walks, he actually is bouncing. He is a very springy type of customer, like he's going to bounce right out of his sneakers. And he has got a smile to light up anyone's day. Plus, he is a serious athlete, a world-class 800-metre runner. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there can't they see they hold the key could make things better if they try oh my jaja tell me why won't they open up their eyes as you're about to hear pete has a story and a half to tell both on and off the track just before we get rolling I got home after this chat and said to the pickle and the big penguin, if I had to choose one episode of the entire show for you guys to listen to, then this is the episode for so many reasons. Pete's thoughts on children and young adults having the courage and commitment to choose their own path, not paths others want them to go down. I loved it. What I'm saying to you is whether your child is six or 26, I would love for you to get them to listen to this episode with Peter. Alrighty, here is the story of Dagmeldon Peter Bowl, a man with a spring in his step. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind you see clearly and now you know mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie I. Come on children, try it with me we want to reach Mount Zion. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that this country fell in love with in a couple of Olympics now and a Commonwealth Games. He runs like the wind. It's the first time I've met him, but he is here in the Howie Games studio in person, which is excites me. Pete Bowl, nice to see you. How are you going? Welcome to the Howie Games. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's Thanks a, for having me here. Are you impressed by the setup too, which is good? <laughs> yeah, I was taking a few photos. I love it. It's awesome out here. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and, and the first thing I wanted to ask you is yeah. how life's changed. So as you were coming downstairs here, and I was trying to get you up in the lift, there's a couple of young blokes that was having a chat with me that work in a you know, workspace below in blockchain, though, would tell me and they said oh who's on your podcast I said Peter Bond they're like oh can we wait and meet him yeah. and and they wanted selfies they wanted photos <laughs> one bloke said I'm not going to say exactly what he said but you're a something or other legend <laughs> like the boys were pumped to meet you really pumped to meet you yeah that's that's probably one of the best part about it you know you get so much support from from the whole country and then you come back you can actually embrace it a little bit more because most of the time we're just kind of overseas and just moving around so being back in Melbourne um, seeing a few people come up asking for photos and 
asking how their season was and how invested they are. Last night I met some boys that said they woke up at like 4 a.m. to watch the race at the Commonwealth Games. So I was like, wow, like that's unreal. Well, I think people are are really invested because they love watching you run. What what have people come up and told you? We, as I said to you before we record, it's always this this podcast is about inspiration and motivation, and you you provide that to so many people. So, what type of things have people come up, kids, adults, people, and and said to you since since you've become a really well known figure? Um, I think it was more like how you conduct yourself, both on the track and then off the track as well. So, um, people are just people are just invested. Like like uh, we started this project it was like Project One Forty Four years ago. Uh, and credit to my coach Justin, um, he's always wanted to make the 800 big, and I think we finally did it. It's like you see kids that like always asking questions, like how do I get faster? How do I get better? It's like, mate, just enjoy it, and and the rest will take care of itself. And then you see um, the, a bit of the older generation, and they just want to know how you stay consistent, and you know what's what's it like outside of the track as well. So you get all different questions from all different ages, and and I think it's pretty interesting. Um, I'm kind of loving the journey. Tell me about Project 144. Is 144 in relation to a time? <laughs> to be honest, we still haven't actually completed that because in, in Paris, I ran 144.00. So to complete Project 144, you need to run under 144. Right. So when did Project 144 start? Well, it started probably 2018. Wow. Okay. So, so project, like a construction project, it's a bit delayed at the moment. Wow. But, but at the same time, um, it shows that athletics is not just about times. You know, you get so much more success in championships. Like um, there's a famous quote that, um, you know, times come and go, but championships and medals remain forever. Huh. So, I mean, coming forth will remain forever. Um, I ran two strand records in, in Tokyo, but anyone can go break those. In fact, I broke it this year in Paris. So that that's going to come and go. But um, I think the real project should be coming back home with medals. And, and we did that at the Commonwealth Games this year. My word, which we'll get to, Pete. So what is it like when people come up to you and now admire you and be inspired by you and tell you what you mean to them? And I'm sure people have come up and said, yeah, I was watching at 4am or this is where I was watching when, when you were running in the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. What is that for you? Um, it's it's really unique, man. It's it's like it's it's a sport that you you think it's individual, especially because you're always running on your own and and doing a lot of training, hard yards on on the track by yourself. But um, once people understand that's it's actually a team sport. Like I've got my support team, like my coach Justin. I've got my agent um, James, and now I've got um, other agency, the Fordham Company, and as well as my training partner Joseph Dang and Fast Eight Track Club. It's like it's really team sport, and I mean just having people that invested it shows you like. It gives you a little bit more sense of a purpose. I think every year you try to find something extra because cause I think in sport, like we all, there's no difference between many athletes. We all do the same training, basically. I look at my competitors' trainings similar. They're on the same times. It's like what differentiates someone else. And I think I think sense of purpose is, is pretty strong. And I think I got that, especially last year, like, man, like how many millions of people watched in Tokyo? Like, man, let's try to get this medal in, um, if not world champ in Commonwealth Games and let's try Let's try to drag it out to Paris and see if we can we can get the whole country kind of behind us. It'd be, it'd be pretty cool. Which is what you've done, which is why we, we need to start at, right at the start of June. But b- before we do that, um, we're in here now. It's twelve o'clock. You're right. I, I've got to leave at this time because I've got a photo shoot to do with a. <laughs> yeah. Is that with a sponsor? Yeah, yeah I'm doing a photo shoot after that. Um, okay. I can't announce yet, but okay. Yep. So, so how, how do you go now in front of the like photo shoot? I like the sound of. We have to do that <laughs> occasionally. Um, it's just so normal now. It used to be like. Now I just just been doing it so many times, but now it's just so normal, yeah. 
how do you go in front of the cameras? Do you like it? You, you seem to like the TV cameras. How do you go on the still cameras? Um, <laughs> I don't mind it. Except sometimes- You like, look a bit sheepish about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. Except sometimes like you, you spend like, that's, that's the thing about like, even about sport, you don't realize how much work goes into it. Yep. And I didn't understand how much work went into photography. Like you sit there taking photos forever and they got to just get the perfect photo, the perfect lighting, the perfect angle. And it takes time. And they use um, one. And then they just use one photo. <laughs> or you do this whole whole interview and they just use 20 seconds well, of it. Well, we'll use this whole, this is the great thing about this. The, everything you say now for an hour, it goes to air. So the, the whole thing goes to air. And what about... Um, like the corporate support comes their way now. I presume you're started speaking to corporate groups. How, how do you find, you, you know, you're a beautifully eloquent man. How, how do you find standing in front of executives and business types and and telling them your story and what motivates you? The great, the great thing about that is um, since since the whole impact I had after the Olympics, I haven't really done anything different. Like I've, I've done speaking for years. I used to speak at schools, at um, rural communities um, since since I finished school, like years ago. So um, it was just kind of building me up. And, you know, what happens is when you get a lot of attention and, you know, you got more people watching you and stuff like that, you get a little bit more corporate gigs, which I was, I was ready for. So I did heaps of corporate gigs last year, you know, so many through Zoom, so many in person and, and you're just kind of building that up and you build a massive network. And at the same time, you build like a massive support networks. Like, you know, you speak for Bankwest, you speak for Westpac and uh, you're speaking for the people and then now you got more supporters there. You speak for many schools and you got something more supporters. So like the great thing is I've always enjoyed speaking. It would, it would have kind of sucked if I didn't enjoy it and I was put into it, but like I enjoy it. Um, and I think it's a lot easier than running for sure. Like, <laughs> I, I don't get nervous getting up on stage <laughs> speaking or anything like that. But some people do. Some, some people, people exactly, think of nothing worse, mate. <laughs> some people do, but I've done it for years. And, and the same as running. Now I get on the track and I'm, I'm not nervous. I'm, I'm like, it's like comfort zone. It's like the most peaceful time. And like before a race, it's just leading up to the race. You're nervous. It's the same thing as like leading up to a massive speaking gig and stuff like that. You're nervous trying to think of what to talk about. But once you get on stage, man, you're just ready to go. It's like muscle memories. Like I've been here before so many times and, and I'm ready. I've got so many questions for you. I've got so <laughs> about training and running, but let, let's start at the start of your, your journey. Um, reading Pete, your, your operator's Pete, but your birth name? Yep. I don't want to get the pronunciation wrong. Nagmeldon? Yeah. Oh, well, Nejmadin. So say, say it again for me so I get Nejma? it right. Nejmadin. Yeah. So I don't know if I've ever said it before. So um, it's an Arabic name. I was born in, in Sudan, Khartoum. Um, in Khartoum? Yeah. Yep. Khartoum, yeah. So Nejma is like separate. So Nejma actually means um, star, which is, I think is pretty cool. And then- uh, <laughs> Seems pretty relevant too. <laughs> <laughs> Nejma means star and then Din is like religion. So um, I've got four brothers and we all have kind of similar names. So my younger brother is Shamsuddin. So Shams in Arabic is the son and then Din son of religion. So um, uh-huh. yeah, so it's pretty cool. And then I've always kind of had Pete as well. Like we go by, so and my parents, we've got nicknames and stuff like that. So yeah, but I, I love my, my first name. It's still using my passport and all my documents, Nejmuddin. Uh, and um, is that what, uh, what, what do your mum and dad call you? Oh, they they kind of call me Peter. They kind of call me Bowl. Nejma did not really much. Uh, but that that's the name on your passport. That's the name on my passport. But I think back home, still got family back home. They'll they'll use that. I've uh, been lucky enough to have Majak Dora on this podcast, and he explained to me his journey from Sudan. And I've been lucky enough, Pete, to spend a lot of time in Africa. Um, yep. So I, I love hearing the, the the journey. So whereabouts exactly were you born? I was, bo- I was born in Khartoum, so um, 
I left when I was six. Right. So you wouldn't have many memories. No, not too many memories. You know, uh, I left when I was so young. I lived in, I think Majak Domasa came through Egypt as well. He did. Majak lived in Cairo. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. So, because, you know, you have so many Sudanese and South Sudanese migrating to Australia. And I think the easiest way, if I'm not wrong, is if, if you're kind of born in Khartoum, you migrate through Egypt because that's the bordering country. And if you're born in South Sudan, which is where my dad's from, you migrate through Kenya because that's the bordering country there. Okay. Um, okay. So you, you you see so many that are that are born in Khartoum, born in Sudan, that kind of migrate through through Egypt, and the rest migrate through Kenya because it's just closer around there. So do you remember any of that journey? Like, often it's from photos and stuff. But what's the first thing you can actually remember as as a little fella? I, I presume it's somewhere in Africa. No, nah, the good thing is all I can remember is just how close my family was back home. Huh. Uh, my mom's got a big family, you know. She's like how big we talking? Big, big, like, like bigger than what she saw on TV. Probably right. she's got she's got a bunch of brothers and sisters. On TV, there's a lot of people stacked in that room. <laughs> be fair to say, Pete, all enjoying themselves as well. <laughs> yeah, and she's got you know, a bigger family back home, and uh, she's fortunate enough to get to go most years back home and see her family. She's going back next month to see her mom. And, uh, yeah, so we've got like massive family. And I spoke early on about like, you get this sense of purpose every year and that's what differentiates different athletes. And I think, I think culture, culture does that for me pretty well. Um, you know, your background and where you're from, you know, coming to Australia, you're always like, you're in a new country, you didn't know what to expect and, and it's a new language and everything like that. And it's like, the goal is always to embrace the new culture, but like to always never forget where you came from because that brings your, that's like who you are. That's where you came from. And that's, and that's like, like with the whole thing over Tokyo and my family going crazy, uh, I'm like, and everyone's like, hey, do you feel a lot of pressure by that? I'm like, no, not really. Like my family does that for like my little nephew's birthday. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's, that's nothing new for me. Um, I mean, in fact, they did that during Rio Olympics. It's just, there wasn't success and there wasn't cameras around it. So that's, that's just our family. That's our culture. And, and I didn't feel any pressure from that. I just felt comfort and I kind of felt like at peace and ready to go. So have you discussed, Pete, the journey with your family? I'm very privileged in this job. Like, um, I'm speaking to you and in a few hours' time, when you go off your fancy photo shoot and <laughs> put your makeup on, look fantastic. You can come. Oh, yeah. I'd, love to see, I'd love to see how you roll. But straight after that, um, it's a, a day really where we're doing two podcasts. And the second podcast is a guy called Ange Postacoglu who coached the Socceroos, now he coaches Celtic in Scotland. And he's been on the show before and he talked about his father and his mum came from Greece and he doesn't, he, he was about your age and he doesn't remember about it, but he explained why his parents had come from Greece and ostensibly it was for a better life, which is so many people in this country have come from all around the world. I think it's one of the best things about Australia. Have you discussed with your parents at all the journey and why and how? Uh, I didn't until probably, and this, this is the moment because I started athletics pretty late. I started athletics at the age of 17 and I was at school playing basketball on a basketball scholarship. So I felt that I needed to play basketball. And I enjoyed basketball. Um, and I fell in love with, with athletics. The moment that I started traveling Australia first, I was like, man, you can, you can run fast and get to go like to Sydney because <laughs> I was living in Perth, go to like Melbourne. So it's, it's just like, was motivating to kind of keep going because for me, it's, athletics was never really a sport. Like we ran around with my brothers and stuff like that. But um, one of the most powerful moments, and I always say this, because, um, you know, the most common questions, as you asked before, like the questions you kind of get from everyone else. When I did a lot of school talks is like, the kids are always super invested in like how many medals and how many races you won. Mm. And, and I could never, ever 
remember how many medals I won, you know. And to this day, every medal I kind of win, I put away or give to my coach and stuff like that. It's great, you know, it's great external motivation. Uh, but what you tend to remember the most is like the journey, the people you meet along the way. And like I remember in 2015, I went to, I went to Paris and I think I was doing a European, European circuit. And my mom's like, you got family there, you should go see them, stay with them. And I said, yeah, all right, bet. And I went, stayed with them and, and they just gave me like, cause I left Sudan and Egypt so young. They just gave me all these stories. And I was like, man, like, it's like, probably I was so motivated that year. And I think I credit that moment to probably making the Olympics the following year and staying <laughs> on. Cause like, man, we've come from so far. And like, like we used to live together in Egypt. Your parents had to go through this and this in Sudan. Can you and, share a, a, a um, general story? I don't want to pry yeah, into, so, your, into your family background. So, but. so my family background. So my, my dad's South Sudanese. He's from a Denka tribe. And my mom is, she, so she's Nuba. So they kind of on the, on the border. It's like Nuba Mountains. But they're kind of considered North Sudanese. And, and even for those two tribes to get married is, I've always knew it's pretty hard. But like explain, uh, my uncle explained to me how hard it was for my dad they have to marry my mom and what they had to go through was like, whoa, like, like he really loved her and like he had to go through so much just, just to marry her. And there was so much discrimination within just culture and tribes just back home. So like, that was like, wow, like I really appreciate that. And then I could come back home and speak to my family about it. And then like how much he had to do to gain the respect of all my mom's brothers and sisters and she's got so much family. My dad left Sudan, South Sudan when he was young, so he doesn't remember, he doesn't know any of his family. So my dad was just kind of by himself out there. So to do all of that and, and the persistence and everything he had to go through to try get all his boys across Egypt and get them to Australia, like you got to respect, you mm. get so much more respect for your family. Not that you didn't have before, but you just get that like, man, like they've done a lot for me. And you've always kind of know it, but once you start to understand it, it's powerful. And then you start moving different. You start doing things a little bit different. Um, like a training session is, you don't just go there for the sake of it. You do it with purpose. You do it with intention um, and all those things. So it was like, man, like 2015 was like probably the best year. It was the moment that I decided I'm going to be a professional runner in 2015 after those few moments. I often, um, on the show, I love the answer. And I love where your motivation comes from, Pete. Uh, people listening to the show frequently know I've got a couple of kids and whoever's most invested in the guests ask a question to the guest. Now, you get my 12-year-old daughter, whose name is Sky, but she operates as the pickle. That's her nickname. <laughs> yeah. We've all got nicknames, especially in this part of the world. And she loved to run. So when I said you were coming on, she was beside herself. <laughs> she, she was that pumped. So if that's okay with you, I'll, I'll play you her question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, here we go. Hi, Peter. Pickle here. First of all, I just wanted to congratulate you on your amazing runs at both the Olympic Games and the Commonwealth Games. They were so amazing to watch. I first found out that I love running in the Year 3 cross country. I've kept running since then and I really enjoy it. So what I want to know is when did you first find your love for running? Wow, that's a, that's a beautiful question. And, you know, funny thing is I actually started running through cross country. Uh, but the only thing is cross country was compulsory and we had to kind of run it. Um, where, so where was this? At St. No I went to St. Norwood's College. I went to school in Perth. In Perth, right. Yeah, so three year eight. And and because I have four brothers and we're super competitive, I used to win school cross country. But when we went to the ACC, which is versing all different schools, I used to come second. And I was coming second for years and I was getting so annoyed and irritated. And Was um, it the same person beating you? Same person. Same dude. What was same, the dude's name? Same person. Tim Richards. Tim Richards. I could never forget his name. 
Um, Has Timmy been to the Olympics? <laughs> you might have had the last laugh, I reckon, Pete. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember my teacher saying, like, you should do this. You should go train outside of school and stuff like that. And I said, nah, like, like running is not a sport. Like, I want to keep playing basketball. And then I had enough. I was, like, fed up in year 11. And I just, and I went and knocked on her door. And I was like, listen, like, why does this Tim Richards guy keeps beating me? She said, well, Pete, he does something called training. <laughs> 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 and, and from there on um, I went trained for maybe I think I was in training for three months and uh, I won the school the next year and I won the inter school I won the states and I just started becoming and I was just like man so that's how training works like you train a little bit more and, and winning is fun like there's some certain things that are fun like winning is fun winning medals is fun but probably the greatest joy is if you can just enjoy it without without the results like the results are like a bonus. So if you're enjoying, if you're enjoying running, if you're enjoying cross country, keep it up and you never know what will take you. And to be honest, if you go far with it and you're enjoying it, you're doing like better than 99% of people because it gets like up the top level. I say my biggest asset is that I can be so relaxed during championships because like I'm enjoying it. I'm being there. I'm not chasing medals. I'm not chasing times, like slowing down at the Olympics and like, my coach is like, go, 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 you can break Australian record. Like, no, we're not here for Australian records. We're not here for anything. We're just here, we're just here to do a job and enjoy and have fun. And I was, I was doing that and she seems to, to be loving it. So oh, just... She's captivated, captivated. Just, like, just keep loving it. And she, yeah, I'm sure like so many kids, it was like, right, she, she would be able to tell me when your heat was, yeah. when your semifinal was, yeah. when your final was. And it's, I, I didn't expect that from my daughter, but she was captivated by what you do. But you were into hoops, yeah. You wanted to, be, you wanted to play basketball rather than run early doors, did you? Early, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was into, I was into a lot of basketball. I loved, I loved basketball. Looked up to Kobe Bryant a lot. Um and then I loved boxing. So I was massive Floyd Mayweather and Muhammad Ali um, fan. And then football, we just played football at Did home. you do much boxing? I did when I was a bit younger. I did for like a PCYC when I lived in Queensland okay. and Toowoomba. Uh, but never really got in a ring or anything like that. So you were in Queensland prior to Perth? Yep, Toowoomba to be right. exact. Yeah. Right. So what's your early memories living in Toowoomba? Man, that place was cold. <laughs> it's cold. It's it's strange. Like, like I couldn't speak a word of English, so you could imagine. So you spoke Arabic. I spoke Arabic, yeah. Right. Uh, but we learned English pretty quick. Yeah. When you're younger, you learn English. So do you remember faster. rolling up not being? Uh, again, I refer back to Ange. Um, yeah. He spoke Greek, and he, he he was six, but he remembers arriving in Australia not being able to speak a word of the language, and yeah. how challenging that was for his parents, especially. Mm-hmm. He adapted quickly, as I'm sure you did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I always, I always believed it's a lot easier for us kids than I, than than the parents to learn the language, because one, we spent like the whole day at school, so we're like immersed in English, like everyone speaking English, and you're in the classroom and you make all these f- new friends. But for our parents, they kind of it, it, and kind of realize like this sacrifice is all for you, for us because they kind of come here and they get kind of work like so. They don't get that same experience as going to school, growing up with Australians and stuff like that. So their culture almost remains always the same. They're just in a different place. Um, while us, we completely change. Mm. Like we, we're, in a, we're in the middle of both kind of cultures. And um, how, how did you see that for your parents? You know, they, they've grown up uh, Sudanese and now their kids are growing up Australian and all the influences we have here. Were they... Will they just go and embrace or do they, they want you to retain your heritage? How, how do they play that? I think there was definitely a conflict in the middle 
because they like they wanted you to to um still keep some of your heritage and and keep some of your culture and then you also but it's really hard when you're going to school okay maybe first year not second year not but years later you go into school in Australia you you're basically Australian like I've spent I spent more time Absolutely. in Australia than anywhere else a lot more. in fact I I spent only 6 years in in Sudan and then and I was probably there's some people that like my brother was born in Egypt and there's so many Sudanese that probably just born in Egypt and so many now are born born in in Australia like my sister was born in Australia she was born in Toowoomba but she get to keep a lot of the culture and I think the key was is just to kind of spend more time with your parents if you just want to keep that like my sister does really well with that cuz she spends time with my mum she goes she goes back home with my mum when she's there so there's there's no need for her she can she can kind of be right in the middle between playing with both different cultures and it puts her in a really good play and unique place because she can understand like it's all about understanding people and like respecting their cultures respecting their beliefs and systems and and she can understand and she can understand that and the best thing about my parents as i said earlier they're from two different tribes so they had to go through a lot just to be together so they understood the differences and of each other and and the different tribes and different traditions so we kind of being in the middle we have to understand which is great like you know to have two cultures mm. inside yourself is you you talked about the sacrifices for your parents what like what were you, what were your mum and dad doing when they first arrived in australia in toowoomba and then perth to support you like, um for employment etc yeah so my my mum was was cleaning and my dad was working i think between factories um so working hard working really hard hard jobs long like, hours like really hard hard jobs and and like long hours yeah so yeah but as a kid you don't really you don't really understand that no but you'd be starting to gain an understanding of that now later yeah done. like a few years later you understand, you understand like how much they had to do cuz easily they could have said no we don't want to do that and we we want to get a bit of the strength we want to go get education we want to do all this stuff but like with four kids and it's like you kind of sacrifice everything for them mm. and i think they did that so it's up to us i guess in a way say thank you by just kind of making them proud and and yeah, just em- embracing it back to Pete shortly next up on the podcast possibly the nicest cricketer going around his name is Mitchell Stark and Starky grew up wanting to play cricket wanting to represent australia as a wicketkeeper <laughs> true story and when do you make the transition from being a wiki that was trying to smack it out of the park? Like, who says, mate, you should have start having a bit more of a bowl? Yeah, it was uh, turned out a good decision, did it? Very but, um, good decision. Although you could have been <laughs> the greatest wicketkeeper batsman we've ever seen. We don't know this, Starkey. Oh, don't know about that. A bit, a bit too tall, a bit hard on the knees, maybe. But yeah, um, yeah it was. Yeah, it was probably through Northern District stuff. Um, so Lisa and I shared keeping for a few years and it was 60 over cricket, I think, at that stage. So we'd sort of do half and half. How old were you when you met you two? I should have gone back and listened to her episode. How old were you? <laughs> we It was the under-10s Northern District, so we, we bumped into each other for the first time and down to Cheltenham Oval and she was playing for Carlingford, I was at Barilla and somehow we were both in Northern District. So um, we both were kept, uh, so we... We pretty much go half and half, so it was thirty overs each. Um, <laughs> and then we had another another young guy come in one year who was also a keeper. So it was almost like we did for a little bit. We did twenty overs each, um, 
And then I must have been third best, so I found myself out of the keeping job. Wow. And I think I actually bowled, like, left arm leggies or something for a little bit, like, tried something. I certainly wasn't a seam bowler. That is Mitchell Stark next up on the show. Let's get back to Pete. So the journey of the 800 metres, this is where I'm going to pester you (laughs) with questions. You're going to go, come on, Howie, give me a spell. When you first start running... 800 metres, and you're just first starting to train. You said, a teacher said, you know, you got to train if you want to beat that bloke and, and win. I, I, at that stage, what are you running at 800 metres in? What what time? Is, what are your first <laughs> times for the 800 metres? My first race, and I think it's actually, maybe might still be on YouTube. Is it? So how old are you then? Uh, I think I was 16, 17. Okay. And the 800, you st- this is how I knew I was to the sport. The 800, you start in lanes, obviously. Yep. And in the first in the first 100, you got to stay in your lane. And then so you I come st- out of the And stagger. then you come out, yeah. So in that race, I started in lane two, and I honestly thought I had to finish the race in lane two. <laughs> so you I ran, the, I ran, I ran about 600 meters <laughs> right. just in the outside lane one, just staying in lane two, because <laughs> I didn't want to get disqualified. Like I didn't, I didn't even understand that. And but the good thing is, like ten years after that, I was at, I was um, I was fourth in the world. Like, yeah. Uh, and four, five years after that, I was at at Rio Olympics. So. So what are um, those times? My first one was probably that race was probably two o five. Two o five. Okay, and your PB is one forty four flat. Yeah. So in two, so in eleven years, you've taken twenty one seconds off. <laughs> so so you spent. 11 years of your life taking off <laughs> yeah. two, two seconds, two seconds a year, yeah? Yeah. So when did you first make an Australian team of any shape or form? The Olympics. So that 2016, that was the first so there was no team. junior team. No junior team. Right. So your first chance to represent Australia is the 2016 Olympics. It was the Olympic Games, yeah. That's extraordinary. <laughs> and so that's only five years after you, you, you yeah. weren't realising the stagger. Yeah. Okay. It's, wow. <laughs> That's extraordinary. So what was, before we get to training, uh, I'm sure it was qualification times, et cetera, when do you find out that you're going to wear the Australian singlet, that you're going to represent Australia? Not until I was in, in Germany because at the Australian trials, I was I was so nervous. I think I finished seventh and you got to come top three. So I was like, well, you know, you, you missed out on the team, try again next year. But the thing is, you've still got to run the time. And Australia didn't have enough people running the time, which is 1.45. So we went to went to Europe and I actually ended up running the time and running second fastest Australian, I think, at the time. Where was that? Where was that, mate? That was somewhere in Germany. Okay. In Weissbaden or something like okay. that. Okay. Yeah, somewhere in Germany. And, and I get a call and say, you've been selected to represent Australia when I was when I was in Germany. And when you get all the gear, yeah, when you get all the Australian gear, describe that moment to me and what it meant to you. Man, you just go through it so fast. You're just flipping it, throwing it around. Like you're just trying to put everything on, and <laughs> it's probably the best moment. Like, cause, like growing up, I used to always see people wearing like the IS socks. Yeah, and I was like, man, that's so cool. <laughs> you know, I always wanted those, and it's like, well, you gotta kind of make a team. Cause I played basketball, and everyone used to used to wear it, making an Australian team, and um, just getting those those uniforms was was unreal. And even being like in the Olympic Village was unreal. Did you meet any basketballers being a basketball man? Yeah, I met I met like so many, you know, and like from Paddy Mills, I'm a big fan. Oh. First time I met him, 
this just super nice guy down to earth. This and, man should lead our country at some stage. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's unreal. He's as an impressive athlete as I've ever had the privilege of meeting. Pete. And and that's so true because when I first met him, he came up to me and 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 said hello, welcome to the team. I'm Paddy Mills, and I'm thinking in my head like. Why? You don't need to tell me who you are. <laughs> I know Paddy Bills. <laughs> I know who you are. <laughs> you know, it was just so nice. And, and you know, fast forward um, five years later to the next Olympics, um, it was just the same dude, super nice, super down to earth and um, supporting, asking me when my heat are and, you know, when I'm getting that lot of attention, it's like, come on, let's go get it, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I met him. That was cool. Uh, who else did I meet? Clay Thompson. Tony Parker. Wow. Um, Bolt at the time was big. So you met Bolt? I met Bolt, yeah. First thing I met Bolt and I was... What were your impressions? Like, where did you meet him? I was, you know, because before that I had a conversation with this sports psychologist and I didn't know sports psychology was really a thing. Like, and I was like, why do I need to speak to this guy, you know, sports psychologist? And because one, you know, when something exists and two, he's actually believing in it. Like sports psychology matters and and all the other things matter, like strength conditioning matters. Um, and this, this was like I was just talking to me. It's like, you know, Pete, it's your first, if your first games, you, you don't want to be too overwhelmed or you don't want to be too nervous staying in your room the whole time. So you gotta, you gotta be pretty relaxed. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll be fine. <laughs> and then I get there and like the first thing I'll see is like Patty Mills was like, damn, I'm like, okay. And I go to the dining hall and I see, um, <laughs> I see Usain Bolt. I'm like, oh my days, <laughs> oh my days. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, um, I usually don't say this, but usually you don't really get excited about food. But when food is free, it's just unreal, right? Like you go to Olympic Village and everything's free. Like you get uh, you know, McDonald's is even free in there. <laughs> like imagine vending machines didn't cost money. Um, food court open twenty four seven. And I'm like, I'm getting out of that bubble. Like I'm, you know, and before you know it, I got to the track. I had nothing left. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I was just so, so overwhelmed by everything and just so excited to be there. Like to the point that I was, I was getting, I got like three haircuts for the sake of it because they were free, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you, you were run out of the heat in your first Olympics. Yeah, I was yeah. run out of the heat pretty fast. What yeah. time did you do? I think it was only 149. So okay. it was ridiculous. 149. So, um. Two questions for you on that. What, what did you learn from your first Olympic experience? A few things. Um, one is, as I said before, everything relates back to kind of where you've come from in your culture. Like I come from two different cultures and so I love culture and I love, I love people and I love people's differences and stuff like that. So when you go to Olympic Village and you have people from Jamaica, people from like from South America, Central America, Africa, Asia, you just analyze every different culture. Hmm. And I'm sitting down like on the track, I'm trying to analyze the cultures that do well in the sport. So I'm looking at Jamaica and, you know, you saying, well, of course is there. And they're just having a ball, have music loud and, and they're just dancing. I'm like, mate, like the Olympics haven't even started. What are these guys celebrating about? Like surely. And then you look at like the East Africans, which is my background. Like you see the Kenyans and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm like, they look so shy and nervous because they're kind of quiet. But like when they get on the track, it's, they're not that quiet anymore. Yeah, like, like it's just a beast mode activated. And I'm like, who, who do I want to be like? I'm like, of course I want to be like the Jamaicans because they just look like they're having a ball, not like the Kenyans. And the little I know, like the Kenyans win my event. It's like, well, maybe it's not about being Jamaicans or being the Kenyans, just being yourself. So that was number one. Like, you know, I still appreciate different cultures and understand them, but understand like you're there because of you. And 
and you can't be anyone else. Like it's okay to get inspiration from like Patty Mills, from Usain Bolt, whatever it is, to get some insights. But you can't be someone else. It takes so much energy to try to be other people. So brilliant that was, explanation, that was, Pete. That's a brilliant. We that have was, so many kids listen to this show, and I hope they're listening to what Peter's saying. Yeah, that is a brilliant explanation, mate. And um, and it's great. And then number two, I think, was like, uh, <laughs> I guess. You know, you train, you train for five years, whatever it took me to get to the Olympic Games, and I'm there getting excited about like McDonald's and getting excited about like free haircuts and stuff like that. It's it's like there's a word called balance. Like you gotta you gotta balance that. Um, it's okay to have fun. It's okay. In fact, the whole journey should be fun, but you gotta know when to switch on and you gotta know when to switch off. It's the same at school. Like you gotta know when to switch on and you know when to switch off. And and if you can learn to do that, it take you a long way. Like I think. I just didn't know how to do that. And it was fine because it was my first games. Uh, so it's hard. And then and then number three is what I spoke about um, earlier that um, like I don't know what medals and what races I've won or lost. Like, um, In fact, like my Commonwealth Games medal, I almost left it in Europe because right after the race, I gave it to my, my agent. I said, hold it because I'm, I'm going on a training camp. And when I was leaving Germany, he's like, do you want your medal? And I almost forgot to bring it back. It was like, but I remember like every single journey. Like I remember that story with Paddy Mill pretty well. Um, but like you asked me what time did you run in that day? I don't know what time exactly I ran. I know it was 149 something, but I don't know. I know what time I even ran to win silver at the Commonwealth Games. And that was only a few weeks ago. Mm. Uh, but I remember like the heats. I remember leading up to it. I remember the people and everything like that. So that's pretty important. So I guess be yourself, um, embrace the journey. So important, super, super important. Yeah. And just learn to keep things balanced, like fun and entertaining and, and but don't neglect training because you got to still put in the work. We'll talk about training, but just before we talk about training, you talked about the sports psychology and you're like, eh, <laughs> yeah. what's been your main learning from a sports psychologist's point of view as far as what you do for a living? Um, let's see. So my first Olympics, I didn't believe in it. My second Olympics, it was like my biggest asset. Uh, and I say that. What you learned from the sports psychologist. Yeah. Is, or like, because you can't, you can't just say you're going to work on a few things for a few days, a few hours or whatnot. It's got to take time. The experience matters, you know, um, the journey matters. Like for those whole five years, I worked so hard on myself outside of the track then on the track because I think the track takes care of itself like I've got my coach I've got my strength conditioning coach they they take care of themselves like all the training takes care of themselves it's like what you have to work on is like who you, like to be happy with who you are it makes a big difference you know you go on the track and you're and you're not happy you're not happy to be there you're gonna get you're not gonna do any well no. like you gotta wanna be there and something is just as easy as like being happy with who you are um, wanting to be there is important. Um, three, believing in yourself, like, and focusing on yourself. Like when, when I was, when I was in Rio, I was like trying to analyze everyone. When I was in Tokyo, man, I was chilling. I was like, you know, when I left Australia and people always say you're humble and I'm like, I'm not actually that humble. I just don't say that loud. Um, I'm, I'm confident, but within enough, like I don't need to say that loud. Like, I'm sitting there at the track sometimes and when I was leaving straight, I'm like, there's no way there's like, because to make a final out of 48 people in the world, oh. you have to be, you have to be in top shape. And I'm like, and there's only eight people in the final. And I left Australia, I'm like, there is, after a session, I'm like, there is no way there's 
more than eight people faster than me in this world or or that can perform as better in a championship and like you gotta have that belief it's like i'm not going there and saying like i hope i'm gonna do that i was like i'm going there i'm like no like if i'm if i get everything right i'm not nervous and i'm i'm ready to go and focus on myself there is no way like i was just in that kind of shape there's no way that someone so that know, positive self-talk yeah 100 is so important and you got to believe it you don't just say it yeah you got to believe it you, and you, you got to have done the work and you got to have done the work it. like i've said that you got to realize i've said that after like a session i did i can't remember what the session was and man i was just moving and it was just like effortless it was like nah like i'm ready to go that is the end of Peter Bowl Part A. Another whole lap to go in Part B.